0: In your Bibles this morning, will you turn to the Gospel of Luke with me? Luke chapter 12. And our focus this morning is on verse 13 through verse 21. Luke chapter 12. Someone in the crowd said to him, that is to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. Let's bow in prayer together. Lord, we come before you today and we read your word and we listen to the truth of your son, the Lord Jesus. And Father, today... We desire to learn. We desire to have open ears and hearts to not only to listen, to understand, but, Father, to put into practice, to apply the things that we learn. And, Father, we know that left to ourselves, in our own strength, this would be impossible. So, Father, we ask for your grace. We ask for the help of your Holy Spirit that he would illumine our minds to understand, but also that he would empower us with strength and with the desire to put into practice these things. Father, may we seek you above all else. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Kent Hughes in his commentary on this passage tells a story about an English professor. And uh, this English professor had five sisters who grew up in a small Midwestern town during the depression where her father, despite the difficulties of the time rose to become a successful banker. And so this professor, she had gone off to university, but her sisters stayed close to home, married and settled down. She likewise married and began teaching on the West coast. When her aging father died, she and her husband hurried home for the funeral as they comforted, comforted, her poor mother. They noticed in utter amazement that everything in the house had been tagged by the other sisters with their names, Judy's, Margaret's, Annie's and so on. She and her husband were shocked, appalled, but said nothing. The table was set and dinner was served amidst mounting tension and awkward conversation. There were long periods of silence Then her husband stood, stepped behind their mother's chair and said, everyone has tagged what they want. We're placing our tag on what we want. And he placed his hands on their poor mother's shoulders. Can you think of a more despicable time to focus on possessions, money and things than during the loss of a loved one? And yet it happens all the time. I've seen it happen in my own family, extended family, family members feud and fight and scratch and claw for whatever is left of the family memories and possessions. A time of mourning in which should be a time of unity and togetherness in remembering the loss of a loved one turns into a time of hatred and greed. For some, all they care about when their parents die is finding out how much they get, how much is left to them in the will. We see that happen around us. Maybe we've seen it with our own eyes. And what we read in the gospel of Luke this morning reminds us that this is not a new problem. This has been going on since the dawn of time, since the very first sin, the very first lust of the eyes took place in the garden of Eden. And so in Luke chapter 12, We see Jesus talking with the crowds and it says that someone in the crowd called out to him and said, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And so someone in the crowd calls out and asks Jesus to settle an intramural family squabble over the inheritance rights. Apparently this man's brother had tagged everything in the house when the father died and wasn't willing to share it. And so this man comes to Jesus to solve the dispute, thinking that Jesus would certainly come down in his favor. After all, that would be fair, wouldn't it? And so he asked Jesus to settle the dispute. Now, it was not necessarily uncommon for this to happen in that day. Sometimes people would go to a rabbi, to a teacher, to solve a dispute because they were experts in the scriptures. They were experts in the law and maybe could give an opinion about what the law would say in this matter. And at first glance, it might seem like this man wants Jesus just to be an impartial arbiter and an impartial judge. But you can see really, that's not what he's asking. This man has already decided what is right. And what this man has decided is I should get mine. He just wants Jesus to exert whatever authority or power he has, to tell his brother to share the inheritance with him. So he's not so much asking Jesus to be an arbiter as he is asking him to be on his side and tell his brother to give him his fair share. And so basically the man in his complaint accuses his brother of greed and covetousness. He's taking all the inheritance for himself. But here's the thing about accusations. A lot of times there's a mirror and they reflect back on us, don't they? Especially when it comes to greed, because almost without fail, when you're accusing someone else of being selfish and of being greedy, guess what? So are you because you want what's yours too. And so you're pointing at someone else for being greedy and selfish, but what's motivating you other than you want what you want and your greed and your selfishness. And so this man also reveals his own greed in this request of Jesus basically it just sounds like a couple of five-year-old brothers squabbling over a toy. No, it's mine. No, it's mine. It's mine. And in their immaturity, this man wants Jesus to solve it. And I love Jesus comment in verse 14. He says, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Jesus wants no part of it. He wants no part of this inter-family squabble. And what's really kind of ironic about Jesus' response to this man is who better to solve a dispute than the judge of all the earth, right? Jesus says, Who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? And yet, in reality, Jesus is the judge of the entire universe, isn't he? He has the full right, he has the full authority to judge anything and everything and everyone but he does not insert himself into this situation. Why? Because he knows their hearts. He knows their hearts. He knows what is motivating them. And instead of inserting himself into this matter and trying to solve this family dispute, instead, Jesus, as he often does, turns it into a teaching opportunity for the whole crowd that was gathered there. And so verse 15 says, then he said to them, notice it doesn't say he said to him, Singular, he said to them, he turned it into a lesson for the whole crowd. And he says, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. He warns his listeners to be on guard against covetousness. Jesus, in saying this, is essentially passing judgment, isn't he, on these two brothers. He doesn't solve their dispute because he knows exactly what's motivating it. And he brings it to the surface when he tells the whole crowd to watch out for greed. In other words, this man and his complaint and his brother, they're both guilty of greed and covetousness. Greed covetousness is basically the desire to have more, isn't it? To have more, whether it be money, possessions, something better, something bigger, something that someone else has that we want. It is greed is fundamentally seeing a lack that we perceive to be a lack, a hole. And we want to fill that hole with something or with more of what we already have. And Jesus says, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. And Jesus here is not condemning money per se, He's condemning the love of money, isn't he? He's condemning our attitude toward money. Does it consume us? How often do we think about money? How often do we think about what we would like to have? How often do we think about a bigger house, a nicer house, a bigger yard, a newer car, a a better paying job, a new boat, whatever it is? How often do we think about these things? How often do these desires get in the way of our relationship with God and our relationship with one another? And that's what's really damaging and heinous about greed is that it has the tendency to destroy relationships. Just look at this man and his brother. They're worried about an inheritance. They're fighting over money and it drove a wedge between them, didn't it? It has a tendency to destroy relationships. Just like in that story that I told at the beginning with that English professor and her family, it destroyed their relationship with one another. Greed clouds priorities. It gets life all out of focus. It distorts what life is really about. Fundamentally, it gets in the way of our two primary relationships between us and God and between us and other people. You can't love God with all of your heart, soul, and mind if your heart is consumed by greed and the desire for more. You can't love your neighbor as yourself if you're more interested in keeping your money for yourself than you are in sharing and giving to those in need. That's why Paul in Colossians and Ephesians calls greed idolatry. He says greed covetousness is idolatry. What is idolatry? Idolatry is essentially taking anything or anyone other than the one true God and exalting it to a a level of worship of inordinate desire of making it priority in our lives. Romans one defines it as worshiping and serving that which is created instead of the creator. Anytime that you play something that is created over the creator, you are guilty of idolatry. And so it doesn't just have to be a statue to be idolatry. It can be a pile of money that is idolatry. Anything in creation that you put over the creator is idolatry. It's easy for things to become our God. That's why Jesus says, in the gospels that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Why? Because greed is so powerful. The love of money is so powerful. It blinds us. It distorts us. It consumes us. Greed is one of the aspects of worldliness. First John defines worldliness as the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. And that word life has the meaning of possessions pride in possessions in our status in life and what we own can quickly turn into idolatry which is why jesus says watch out be on your guard and i think the main idea of this passage is essentially communicated in verse 15 when jesus says watch out be on your guard against all kinds of greed because life does not consist in an abundance of possessions in that verse. Jesus teaches us the lesson that he wants us to know. And that is that an unquenchable desire for more money and possessions is completely inconsistent with the life of a true disciple of Jesus Christ. A desire an unquenchable desire for more money, more possessions. It is inconsistent with the life of a true disciple of Jesus Christ to put it another way, maybe more simply greed is not an option for a Christian. Greed is not an option for the Christian. Listen to some of these passages that talk about greed. First Corinthians five eleven. Paul says, now I'm writing to you that you must not associate, with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Now, when we see that list, some of those things in our minds, I mean, don't raise your hand, but just answer this question for yourself. How many of those things seem worse than the others? I mean, if we were to say, what are the worst sins? Uh, We would probably list off murder, adultery, sexual immorality, idolatry. We would list off some of these things that Paul mentions here, but would we bring up greed? The love of money. Paul puts it right in with all of these very serious sins. He says, don't even eat with such people. In other words, if somebody claims to be a Christian, But this is what their life is like. Essentially, Paul is saying they're lying. They're not telling the truth. They're really not a brother or sister. Don't have anything to do with them. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Again, we would be tempted to say some of those sins are worse than others. Homosexuality, sexual immorality, idolatry, adultery. And in that list, he says greed. Ephesians 5. But among you, among you Christians, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of... Greed, because these are improper for God's holy people, nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this, you can be sure, no immoral, impure or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Why is greed listed with these serious sins? He just explains it to us right there. It's because greed is essentially false worship. It's idolatry. You're loving something above God. Paul in 2 Timothy, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, Proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people, lovers of money, he says romans one twenty eight Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They in vent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they knew, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Greed and depravity, he says in verse 29. What all those passages have in common Every single one of those passages describes either clearly a genuine unbeliever or someone who claims to be a believer, but is really not a believer. In other words, all of those passages, what they have in common is that they're describing unbelievers and describing those whose ultimate destiny is condemnation and not the kingdom of God. And by the way, that list is not exhaustive. There are many, many more passages, verses in the Bible that talk about greed than I just mentioned there. And I read all of those passages for effect to remind us that these passages talk about the things that are condemned by God. And among them is greed and the love of money. That is why Jesus has such a strong warning for his disciples. Beware of greed. We as Americans should probably pay particular attention to that. Shouldn't we? We live in a very prosperous society in today's world. We are one of the richest nations in the world. We have, yes, there is still poverty in our country, but it's low. And even those in poverty here are above the poverty level of many other countries in the world. We live in a very prosperous nation. So when you compare us to our own time, we are in one of the most wealthiest, we are the wealthiest countries in the world. Then consider the fact of comparing America today to all of the history of the world and how many comforts and possessions and things we have available to us. In comparison with all of history, we are particularly susceptible to greed. And on top of all that's available to us, We also have companies spending billions of dollars telling us that we need those things. We have people whose whole mission in life is to sell us something. That's their whole mission. That's their whole job is to come up with new ways to get you to want something, to buy something. And it's everywhere. Everywhere you look, billboards, magazines, online, on TV, everywhere message after message after message of you're not satisfied. You need more. This is not good enough. Try this. It's all over the place. And so we're bombarded by it. So we should pay attention to Jesus warning Be on your guard against greed. And that's why Jesus tells the story in verses 16 through 19. Jesus tells them a parable. He says, there's a ground of a certain rich man that yielded an abundant harvest. And he had a dilemma. He didn't have enough room for it all. What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, here's what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, eat and be merry. Now for us, we don't typically deal in terms of silos and grain for most of us. We, we deal in different terms, don't we? We deal in terms of houses and garages and bank accounts, but we can relate to this. Well, I have too much stuff, so I need a bigger house. I have too much stuff. And so I need to rent a storage building. Right? How rich are we that we have stuff that we have to rent extra places to store all of our stuff that most of the time we never even use. We have a whole industry of people building buildings so that people can store their stuff, extra stuff. I have too many cars. I need a bigger garage. I have too much money. I need to spread it across multiple bank accounts. I need more and more places to store all that I have earned and purchased. And here's the real danger in verse 19. I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years, take life easy, eat, drink and be merry. And the danger in verse number 19 is really on multiple levels. One of the dangers is self-sufficiency. He looked at all those possessions, he looked at all of his grain, and what did he think? I've got security, right? I've got security. I've got enough for the future, and so now I've got enough laid up that I don't have to worry about the future. Where was his confidence? Where was his security? It was in himself, wasn't it? It was in himself and in the things that he had accumulated. But what's the danger of that? Well, there are multiple dangers to thinking that we are good for the future with what we have earned. It's presumptuous, isn't it? It's presumptuous because we don't know what the future holds. We don't know what's going to happen to the stock market tomorrow or next week. We don't know what's going to happen 20 years from now. We don't know if our 401k and IRA is going to be as secure as it is today. We don't know what will happen if perhaps a storm or a fire or a flood takes out our possessions. Nothing in this world is certain, is it? Yet that's where he was putting his security. So one of the problems was self security, self sufficiency, but it was presumptuous. It's foolish because he can't know or control the future. The other problem with what verse 19 describes is not only self sufficiency, but the fact that he was placing really the meaning of his life in the comforts and the enjoyments that he could glean from those resources. And here's where I think Americans are particularly in danger because we have created a life for us, for most people that our life is easy, eat, drink and be merry. We're thirsty. Well, walk over to the fridge and pick from 50 different drinks that you have in the fridge. You want juice? You got juice, you got milk, you got soda, you got water, whatever, pick from it. You don't have to walk a mile down to the well and put a bucket in and draw water out. And that's all you have to drink. We have all of these entertainment options, well, I have to go to the store. Should I take this car or that car? I'm gonna I'm gonna go uh, I'm gonna go on a vacation. Should I go here or here or here or here? We have all of these options available to us, and we're we're. It's very easy for us to put our life, our identity, our meaning, our whole purpose for existence in those things and in living life for its comforts. This man said, I'm going to take it easy now. I'm going to enjoy these comforts that I have built for myself. And so he fell into an attitude of self-sufficiency, but he also fell into really a false uh, worship and idolatry of putting life's possessions and comforts above everything else. That's where his meaning of life was. But Jesus in the story reveals the foolishness of it all. Because in verse 20, God says to this rich man, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? The man made the mistake of forgetting that God was still on the throne. In his pride and in his self-sufficiency, he said, I have plenty of food stored up for many years. It's assuming he's going to live for many years. God is still the one who holds our breath in his hands. He sustains our very lives. Everything we have is from him. Whether it is a super abundant crop, a nice paycheck that is the result of extra work and overtime, or a nice bonus, or a wealthy inheritance, everything that we have is from God. And lest we think that our life consists of the things that we own and what we can buy, remember that God can call us all to account this very day. Our life may end today or tomorrow. And then who will own all of those belongings? Remember all those verses that I read earlier about greed? Who are they about? They were about unbelievers, weren't they? Well, this passage is no different. God calls this man a fool. And in the Old Testament, a fool was one who lived his life without God and in defiance of God's word. This is an unbeliever. He has lived his life without God. He managed his wealth without God, but now he is standing before God. And God demands an account of this man's soul, but his grain and his wealth cannot pay his debt, can it? Doesn't matter how much you earn, it cannot pay your debt of sin with God. Everything he had amassed and saved up was useless in eternity. Someone else is going to get it and use it. Someone else who didn't work for it will enjoy all of his hard work. It reveals the utter futility and worthlessness of material possessions. That's exactly what Ecclesiastes was saying in Ecclesiastes 5. You're chasing after the wind. You can't catch the wind, can you? You keep chasing and chasing and chasing it but you reach out to grasp it and it goes through your fingers. All of these possessions are temporary and if they're of little value, they mean nothing. And this man has traded his soul for them. Now Jesus applies it in verse 21. He says, This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. If your life consists of indulging yourself in pleasures and possessions and leisure, then you will end up just like this fool. Jesus reminds us there are two kinds of wealth. There is physical wealth, there's economic wealth, but it's only temporary. It's here today, gone tomorrow. After you die, somebody else gets it. You can't take it with you. But Jesus also reminds us that there is a wealth toward God. There's a spiritual wealth. It is eternal and it has abiding value and no one can take it away. If you're walking out of the store into the parking lot after dark one night and somebody jumped out from behind your car and stuck a gun in your face and said your money or your life, what would you do? Well, if you're a normal person who wants to live, you would hand over your wallet, you would hand over your purse, The money that's in your purse, the money that's in your wallet is not worth your life. In that deathly, terrifying situation, you'd be willing to give up your money and your credit cards in order to preserve your physical life. But how many would be willing to trade their money and their possessions to gain their soul in heaven? Remember the rich young ruler that came to Jesus? said, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, go sell all of your possessions and give to the poor, and then you'll have eternal life. The point that Jesus was making there is not that you can buy your way into heaven by giving to the poor. But Jesus told that man that because he knew what was in his heart. And he knew that that man still had an idol, a false God in his heart, which was greed. And when he confronted him with it, what did he do? He traded his soul for his money. And he walked away. Your money or your life, Jesus presented him with. Your money or your eternal life, and the man walked away with his money. Jesus says in Luke chapter 9, verse 24, For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self, their soul? Now, I'm not saying that Jesus calls all of us to a life of poverty. In fact, there are several places in the scriptures where, G- where the apostles, where Jesus gives instructions on how Christians should Christianly handle their wealth and be generous with it. So Jesus does not necessarily call every Christian to a life of poverty, but he does call every Christian to renounce the love of money to renounce greed, to renounce covetousness, and to be willing to part with anything and everything for the sake of knowing Christ. Remember what Paul said in Philippians 3? All these things that I have done, this long resume of accomplishments, he says, I count it all as garbage so that I may know Christ. And so Jesus teaches us in this passage that an unquenchable desire for more money and possessions is completely inconsistent with the life of a true disciple of Jesus Christ. And so may we examine our own hearts and look inside. May the spirit help us. Where are my desires? Where's my love? How attached am I to the things of this world, your money or your life. Let's bow in prayer together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And this morning we just think and meditate on what our savior has taught us today. Lord, we acknowledge that it is so easy for us to fall into the trap of the love of money and of greed. It's all around us. It's in the world. It's part of the American dream, the American way of life to want more and to build up a retirement, to have savings and to have a nice home. It's part of the the message of our culture. And we're constantly bombarded with messages that tell us that we need more in order to be happy. Father, we need your help. We need your grace to be on guard against greed, as Jesus taught us. Lord, you have called us to value you and your kingdom above everything else in this world. Father, help us to do that. Help us to love you with all of our heart, soul, and mind, which means that we can't serve both you and money. We can't love both you and money with all of our heart, soul, and mind. And so, God, help us to renounce our love of money and possessions and express truly, genuinely our love and affection for you and our devotion and our allegiance to you. Lord, may your spirit give us the grace to do that. And may, in so doing, may we live out the gospel of grace that you have worked into our hearts. And we pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.